All right, Faye. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is this recently released CHAPS trial. And I saw on the OBG project that they've got a great summary out already. Yeah, so if you want to keep up to date to all those studies that are coming out, not only in OBGYN, but also other practice-changing studies and other specialties, make sure you go onto the OBG project and sign up so that you can keep up to date. Fourth-year residents can get the premium project, OBG First, absolutely free. It allows you to create your own library, save resources for you to be able to access later, as well as see something like the second trimester ultrasound atlas that lets you get brushed up on all those images that are going to show up on your written boards. And of course, if you are a resident in general, you can get their core curriculum uh, on their website. So make sure you go ahead and go onto our website to figure out a little bit more about how to sign up for the OBG project and also how to sign up for OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Kriyas over coffee. Faye, we're going to go through yet another trial today, um, and this time we're going to do it a little bit differently. We've been focusing a lot on OB trials, so mm-hmm. while this is not an OB trial, it kind of has some OB relevance to it. It is definitely an OBGYN trial, though, the CREST study. So what are our learning objectives? So we are going to, again, review the data from CREST. We'll talk about what that stands for. And of course, we're continuing our course of studies and data that every OBGYN resident should know. We're going to understand the reason behind why we do what we do and how we counsel um, the way that we do for permanent sterilization. And then we're going to review some of our follow-up, which is how do we practice now? A caveat for this is that the CREST data is from 1996, which is now, you know, 25, almost 30 years old. Um, But we still think that it's a good data set, um, especially the study that we're going to talk about to review because of its large numbers. And it it tells us a lot about what we currently know about permanent sterilization today. And while we do practice somewhat differently today, which, you know, we'll get to because certainly we're doing a lot more like bilateral salpingectomies now compared to the 1980s, it's good to understand why we quote the numbers that we do about permanent sterilization to our patients. And finally, CREST is more of a database and it generated a lot of data um, and a lot of different studies. But we are going to focus on one specific publication today. Um, And then at the end of the podcast, we'll quickly discuss some of the other findings that are also interesting and I think are also relevant. So Nick, uh, as we said, you know, none of the studies that we talk about actually have their cutesy title. So what is the actual title of the study? Yeah, so this is the risk of pregnancy after tubal sterilization findings from the U.S. Collaborative Review of Sterilization. Um, So U.S. Collaborative Review of Sterilization is where CREST comes from. Collaborative Review Sterilization. Again, this is a study working group um, that was part of the CDC and conducted with the National Institute for Child and Human Development, NICHD. It was conducted with a 10-year follow-up period and was done at multiple medical centers across the country. Um, This particular paper that we're reviewing from the CREST data today was published, as Faye said, in the Gray Journal in 1996 and had been presented at the annual meeting of the American Gynecological and Obstetrical Society in Napa, California, the previous year in 1995. I want to go to a meeting in Napa, California, just as a That sounds note. great, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
The study was done because tubal sterilization is the most prevalent form of contraception among married women and formerly married women in the United States. And while sterilization was common at that time, there really wasn't a lot of widespread data about efficacy, especially efficacy over time. And so really, the objective was to assess the effectiveness of the various methods of tubal occlusion or tubal sterilization. So um, let's get to the methods, Faye. Yeah, so the patients that were included in the study um, were those that were aged between 15 to 44 years, and it was a prospective study, like we talked about, of patients undergoing some type of tubal sterilization procedure at the above-mentioned medical centers from 1978 to 1986, and all patients were approached um, and consented before their actual sterilization procedure. Um, so what was the actual way that they did this study, Nick? So patient had to agree, and then they collected a bunch of information about her history. So they would talk to her about the characteristics of the particular tubal sterilization procedure, complications of the surgery and afterward, and this was all recorded. Um, they get contacted again at one month for a brief follow-up, um, and then they had an annual follow-up for five years for all of the patients. If they enrolled early enough, they also had continued annual follow-up for up to 8 to 14 years after tubal sterilization. Uh, remarkable that they could follow right. a patient for 14 years. Um, and if a patient couldn't be contacted for follow-up, then the last completed interview was used for the analysis. At each follow-up, all patients were asked, since your tubal sterilization, have you had a positive pregnancy test or been told by a physician that you were pregnant? If yes, then the interviewer had a separate form with additional info to obtain about the pregnancy, um, and they were excluded from further follow-up if they became pregnant, had a repeat sterilization procedure, a tubal reanastomosis procedure, or a hysterectomy. There were a number of different types of tubal occlusion that were included, um, and it's kind of fun to go through them because you know, some of these things, Faye, we have never done, um, and residents today certainly probably won't have done. Mm -hmm. No laparoscopic unipolar coagulation. Um, we don't. Yeah, do that I don't even anymore. know how to do that. <laughs> There's bipolar coagulation, um, which again, while like I don't think I would ever take a bipolar to the tube and just leave it there, um, but apparently that was a thing. Laparoscopic silicone rubber band application. Um, so like the, I, th I forget what they're called, like the little rings that go around the tubes, yeah. basically, mm -hmm. those little bands. There was the spring clip application, also known as the Fulci clip. Um, and then there were, you know, varying methods of partial salpingectomy. We, postpartum land, always talk about Parkland and Pomeroy methods. Um, there are other types of partial salpingectomy, and then, of course, the total salpingectomy, too. If a pregnancy was identified in that follow-up period, the patients were classified ultimately into a true failure, which was that the pregnancy was definitely conceived after sterilization, a luteal phase pregnancy, where a pregnancy had been conceived prior to sterilization, but then identified after sterilization, pregnancies that resulted from tubal reanastomosis, or IVF, um, or finally, the unknown category. All right. So I'm curious, Faye, what were some of the results and what did they, who did they bring in, I guess? 
Yeah. So one of the remarkable things about this study was that, of course, it was a huge study and also that they were able to follow these patients for a very long time. So at the beginning of the study, 10,863 patients were enrolled um, and ultimately 178 were excluded from analysis. Uh, and some of these were because they were just lost to follow up or they you know, com- couldn't even complete the one month follow up or they refused the prolonged follow up. And then others were excluded for things like you know, they had a hysterectomy, had a repeat tubal ligation, or unfortunately they died during the, the, the course of the study. In terms of the demographics, um, the median age uh, of the patients was 30, which is actually pretty young, I thought. Um, most of the patients were non-Hispanic whites, about 52.7%, um, and had had at least two pregnancies. Um, and very interestingly, when we looked at the most common procedures, they're very different from what we do today. So the most common procedure was the silicone band, 31%, um, followed by bipolar coagulation, so 21%, and then the postpartum partial salpin to me, 15%. And again, I just think this is super different because I feel like what I've done most are the postpartum tubules versus, you know, the bilateral total salpingectomies. Um, though for a bit there, I feel like we also did some Pomeroy's and Parkland's, but certainly I don't feel like I've done very many silicone bands and I've definitely never done any bipolar coagulation. Though so those were, it seems like the most popular ones back in the day. In terms of follow-up, so um, almost 90% were interviewed at the one year rate after sterilization. Um, and as we expected, there was some drop-off as the years progressed. It's just harder to you know, get in touch with these patients again. So about 80% at three years, 73% at five years, 58% at eight to 14 years. And at each of the follow-up inter- interval, they did find that the younger patients, so the patients who were aged 18 to 27, had a lower percentage of follow-up compared to older patients. Um, and black non-Hispanic patients also had lower rates of follow-up compared to white patients. Then I think we kind of come to the most interesting part of their findings, Nick, which is where they actually talk about sterilization failures. Yeah. So again, out of those 10,685 patients included in the analysis, only 143 had a true sterilization failure that amounts to a 1.3% failure rate. Of those pregnancies, 21 or about 15% ended in a miscarriage. 26 or 18% ended in terminations of pregnancy, 41 or 28.7% ended in a delivery, and then 47 or 33% ended in an ectopic pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so really incredible um, how, how tubal sterilization increases that risk of ectopic pregnancy if someone does become pregnant. Right. Um, 34 patients weren't included in the analysis because they had luteal phase pregnancies and 16 had pregnancies from tubal anastomosis and IVF. So let's get into sort of the actual methods, Faye, um, and talk about sort of that change of, of what we do based on some of the study's findings. I think the the really elegant part of their study was that they created these life table cumulative probabilities of pregnancy by method. So they basically said, um, let's look at years one, two, three, four, all the way to year 10. And what is your risk of having a actual failure? So having a probability of a pregnancy by, you know, if you had the bipolar coagulation or unipolar coagulation or postpartum partial salpingectomy. And so, you know, we're not going to summarize everything for you because they had multiple tables. There's multiple methods. They put them out all the way to 10 years. Um, But basically what we see is that for things like the CLIP and interval partial salpingectomy, there seems to be a higher rate of lifetime pregnancies. And the lowest risk overall was the postpartum partial salpingectomy in terms of overall risk of becoming pregnant again. 
they then did the exact same thing, but then they stratified it out by age. So they first looked to see, you know, again, what's the probability of you becoming pregnant at year one, year two, year three, et cetera, all the way to year 10 by method. But what if you are in the younger age population? So if you are less than 28, um, what if you are an older population? So you're, you know, 34 years or older. And they found, again, that the probability for failure in patients who are less than 28 is greater than for patients who are sterilized at an age greater than 34, which kind of makes sense to me. Basically, if you're younger, you're more likely to have more fertile years ahead of you. And then afterwards, when they adjusted for things like age, race, the study site, and all the different things that were different in the demographics, they found that interval partial salpingectomy, spring clip application, and bipolar coagulation were more likely than postpartum partial salpingectomy to result in sterilization failure, or in other words, to result in a pregnancy. After other adjustments, they also found that black patients were at higher risk than white patients for sterilization failure. And it was also very interesting because other tables that they looked at, they also looked at the differences between sites. And you can see that it was actually vastly different, suggesting that the way that someone was doing their procedure could also affect the rate of sterilization failure. All right, Nick, so what does this all mean? Put this all together for us. Yeah. So first, let's talk about sterilization failure rates, um, because I think that this study sort of highlighted that these are higher than they had previously thought. You know, for all comers here, the risk of failure was a little over 1%. Um, And higher failure rates occurred after longer times, no, like more than one to two years, which other studies had looked at. Now, when you had the ability to look out to five to 10 years after the procedure, the failure rate ranged from 1.2 to 8.3 per 1,000 procedures, depending on the method. Um, So I think that was kind of surprising because intuitively Mm -hmm. I would have thought like, oh, you get out of the first two years, then no, up it's set in stone. But actually they found that no, there are some failures that do happen even beyond that. Yeah. They also found that method failure could be affected um, or be different based on age, race, and also the institution. Um, so suggesting how well or properly you do the procedure could affect the effectiveness, um, which is an interesting, um, also intuitive, but kind of hard to say out loud finding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then finally, the risk of ectopic increases in someone who has a prior tubal as well. What would you say, Faye, was some of the follow-up or impact of Crest? Well, I think the first thing we have to discuss is that there were way more data collected than just what was published in this study. So other studies that came um, afterwards that were interesting was they also looked at things like the risk of regret after tubal sterilization. So this was a study that came out in 1985. And, you know, I I, I sometimes uh, wonder, you know, where does that number come from? Because I think we always counsel patients, you know, the risk of regret of a tubal ligation of permanent sterilization surgery can be as high as 20%. So where does that number come from, right? Um, so in this study, they looked and said that the risk of regret is actually very low. It was only about 2% after one year and 2 after two years in all comers. They then looked again kind of at some subgroups. So overall, these patients, um, those who had were more likely to have regret were those that were uh, younger, so an age of less than 30. But interestingly, it was regardless of parity. So whether or not they had children, um, if they had a concurrent C-section. And then after a five-year follow-up, the risk of regret in those that were aged 20 to 24 was about 4.3%, and the rate for those that were 30 to 34 was 2.4%. 
And so that number 20%, I was like, so where did this come from? Uh, Basically, this came from a different study from 1999 in, in patients that were less than 30 years of age. In that same study, for patients who were over 30, the risk of regret was 5.9%. Um, but for patients who were less than 30, the cumulative probability of regret decreased as time since the birth of the youngest child increased. So the more time you took from the birth of your last child, the less likely you were to regret your tubal ligation. And it was also very interesting to find that the risk of regret was actually lowest for patients who had no previous birth, which is super important because this really highlights that we shouldn't just tell a patient, oh, you have no children, um, you've never been pregnant, I-, I won't do a tubal for you because you might regret it. No, the patients who had never had children in this study were actually the ones that were least likely to regret their tubal ligation. And just remember that with this data from the CREST study and this other data, data set that we're looking at, gravidity and parity were not associated with the increased risk of regret. What about some of the other interesting uh, things that we found? Yeah, so other things that are kind of interesting findings, the unintended laparotomy rate was actually kind of associated with laparoscopic tubal sterilization. The rate there was 51 and 5,021, so that was about 1%, um, with increasing risk noted for patients with prior abdominal or pelvic surgery. 1% risk of conversion from laparoscopic to open, um, which is kind of scary to think about for just a or I shouldn't say just a tubal, but quote unquote, just a tubal, right? right? And then characteristics of those that ultimately sought tubal reanastomosis, which I guess kind of gets at similar questions or thoughts about regret, mm-hmm. right? Um, is that 6.2% of patients sought information for tubal reanastomosis. Women who are under age 30 were more likely to seek out that information. And then of those who actually had reanastomosis, they were more likely to be white have lower gravidity, be younger, and to have experienced some change in their status. Um, So for what that's worth. Um, All right, Faye, so we've hinted at this a bit in talking about uh, this study today, but let's kind of formally address how CREST has changed our practice. Like I said, you know, nowadays we're definitely doing different procedures, but I think, you know, the way that I've counseled my patients about tubal ligation sterilization procedures still comes from the data that we have here from the CREST study. And so, you know, with the CREST study, this is how I counsel patients about the risk of failure, um, depending on the method, right? So talking about, you know, if you have a Filchy clip, um, if you have bipolar coagulation, though, you know, I don't perform that procedure, you know, your, your risk of failure is going to be higher compared to other methods. We do talk about that the risk of overall failure is low, but it can't be as high as 1% overall and even higher depending on the patient's age and the type of procedure. I do talk about the risk of conversion to laparotomy from laparoscopy, again, overall low, but, you know, is still about 1% and certainly increases with more surgeries in the belly. And then also talking about that risk of regret is as high as 20%. I feel like I used to just kind of quote that because it was written in our consent, but now I kind of modify that a little bit because, you know, I think that number really only qualifies for certain populations. And there are certain, most populations are going to have a risk that is much, much lower than 20%. And I think the last thing to take away from this study and from the data that comes from the, you know, crest from that collaborative is that we shouldn't just not perform sterilization procedures just because we think that the patient is going to have a higher risk of regret. Because even if someone is nulliparous, young, they're not married, if they're well counseled and they still desire sterilization, we still should perform what the patient wants. Because there is data to suggest that the patients who have no previous birth, the risk of regret is actually the lowest. 
It's all about informed consent. All right, Faye. Well, that was kind of a excellent overview of Crest. Um, thanks for putting that together for us. Oh, once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creag's Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, your favorite podcatcher. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creags Over Cough One, on Instagram and Facebook at Creags Over Coffee. Or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash Coffee. If you send us some love, we'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes on our website, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week. That'll be at www.creagsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or our previous episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, creagsovercoffee at gmail.com. Thank you.